Welcome to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. Welcome to this episode of our podcast show. My name is Carl Michael and we are discussing a highly relevant, so sensitive topic today. Investment ethics for digital assets and crypto projects. We, that is as always my co-host Simon Schaber and me. So hi Simon, greetings from Berlin to Vienna. Thank you, greetings right back at you. And with us today, we have two amazing guests from New York and Zurich. So greetings to New York, Anne Griffin, product manager at a leading e-commerce company and owner of Griffin Product and Growth Consultancy. She's a coach for AI and blockchain. Hi Anne. Hi, it's such a pleasure to be here today. And also with us, and greetings to Zurich, just arrived in Zurich, is Irina Hever. She's a crypto and blockchain lawyer, partner, blockchain and digital assets at Keystone Law Middle East. Hi, Irina. Grüße from Switzerland. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for having me. Grüße <laughs> back uh, from Berlin. Okay, great to have you both uh, on the show here. I got to know you by listening to another podcast, which our last guest on the show, Anthony Day, hosts. It was a podcast about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And in this podcast, uh, I think a couple of people and you two were also involved, were ideating on NFT applications. And you came up with the idea of tokenizing unsolicited messages. So messages you don't want to get normally. I found this idea, and, and well, you can obviously not only make them transparent, but also monetize them. And, and I found this idea really creative, and it's a really brilliant idea. And somehow this was a trigger to invite you both for a talk now on ethical aspects in blockchain. And since we are an investment-focused podcast here, now on investment ethics. Uh, but before we learn more about you and your opinions on this topic, uh, the usual disclaimer to our listeners. Nothing we discuss here is investment, legal or any kind of advice. But these are just personal opinions of Anne, Irina, Simon and me. For your personal investment decisions, you need to do your own research. Okay, now let's get going and understand our guest's background in blockchain and digital assets a little bit better. And I'm going to start with Anne here. Anne, when and how did you enter the blockchain space? My first entrance to the blockchain space, I was, as a as kind of a side, side thing that I was doing on top of my normal nine to five, I was an emerging tech correspondent for Tech 2025. And Charlie Oliver, the CEO of Tech2025, sent me to an event called Are We in a Cryptocurrency Bubble way back in 2017. And that was just really fascinating. I learned a lot about blockchain overall, how it works. I read the Bitcoin white paper and I was like, huh, you know, there are certain, certain crypto assets I wouldn't be interested in, but there are things like Bitcoin where I was like pretty sold and When the market crashed in 2018, somewhat shortly after I actually started working at a blockchain startup, I actually bought crypto for the very first time because I am very much a fan of buying when everything's on sale. So that was like my first entrance into the world of blockchain and crypto. A very personal question. If there were only two cryptocurrencies and you can only choose one, Bitcoin or Ether? If I could only choose one, I would go with Bitcoin. And I'll say, but from a specific lens, 
in terms of if I'm going to try to use this as a, a currency, the limited quantity is something where I think for me as as someone who I'll say as an investor and also as someone who wants to try to protect my assets against inflation, I think that is something that I see as very attractive. And I also say there's a lot of not saying they can't get there, but a lot of things in Ethereum they need to solve for that is making it less desirable for its purpose of dApps um, with the rising gas prices. Irina, what was your trigger or your moment of truth when it comes to blockchain or digital assets? So I learned about Bitcoin uh, in 2011. At the time, I was an energy attorney working for the fourth largest oil and gas services in the world. I learned about Bitcoin completely by chance. Software engineers were using a company server capacity to mine Bitcoin. I learned about that just accidentally hearing about that. I wanted them to tell me what that Bitcoin thing was. They explained it to me. Of course, you know, as a, as a senior lawyer for the company, I had to tell them to shut this down and not to use the company computers for those activities. But I got curious. I looked into that and I completely dismissed it as nerds money or, you know, boring IT people money that will never translate into the real world. Then in 2013, I had more experiences with Bitcoin. That's already in Germany. In 2013, you could already buy things for Bitcoin in, in Germany. And I was very happy to spend all the Bitcoin I mined in 2011 because I thought, you know, this is just free money, right? This Because it cost me nothing to, to get it to start with. And now I can actually buy real things. So I was very happy to spend all Bitcoin on like the silliest things. Then in 2015, 14, 15, I was a regional general counsel of a tiny little uh, company called Maersk. You would have heard about this. It's the, the largest mm -hmm. shipping group in the yeah. world. And the company entered into JV or some sort of arrangement with um, IBM and built the first project on blockchain. That was the first corporate giant building something on blockchain. And the project is still alive called Hyperlens. I mean, it's not very much alive and kicking, but it is. And that's when I learned that, okay, here's the application Bitcoin. Here's another application blockchain. And then, of course, 2016, 2017, that's when ETH came about. And I think I got completely converted and convinced in 2016. So I left the corporate world for good. And I started working with digital assets, you know, crypto clients, because that's when various companies started trying to enter the Middle East. In 2018, I set up a crypto exchange in Dubai, and we grew to be one of the largest ones. I exited just before the pandemic, and I returned back into corporate practice as a lawyer, working with really cool, visionary founders in the crypto space. This is what I do now. And if push comes to shove, ESA or Bitcoin? For sure, 100% Bitcoin, called uh, a toxic Bitcoin maximalist, and I'm absolutely okay with that. Now, I mean, today's topic is investment ethics. Generally, when we think about ethics in, in, when, in investing, we think about uh, ESG, we think about governance, we think about sustainability. Of course, normally aimed at minimizing externalized cost or making sure that the people that cause the externalized cost also pay for it and stand up for them. Now, in crypto, 
it's hard, I think, to even pin down what the externalized costs are at the moment, because, of course, there's the common fad around money laundering, about um, only criminals use crypto, the stuff that uh, we hoped back in maybe 2013, 2014 already would die down, but now it's 2021, it's still life and kicking. So maybe both to you, Anne and Arena, and maybe this time we start with Arena. When you are thinking about investment ethics and digital assets, What's the first couple concepts uh, in your mind that pop up immediately? So as a, as a toxic Bitcoin maximalist, of course, the first thing that comes to my mind is the expropriation of fiat by governments. It's taxation without representation. It's the inflation, which is the secret tax that government erodes your purchasing capacity. That what comes into mind, my mind. My family ran away from Soviet Union when I was a kid. So and every cent that they had, was basically taken away from them. I mean, they, this, like all their savings were eroded and the government just took everything that the people owned. So that's when I think about the investment ethics. Can my things be taken away from me by governments who I have a, a lot of dislike for in general, by other people? What is the counterparty risk? So this is what I look at. And Bitcoin is the perfect answer for me. Then, of course, other things that come to mind, right? It, what, uh, let's look at the definition of ethics. You know, I'm an attorney. I like defining things. It's a ethics in my mind. In the simplest definition, is the system of moral principles, right? And the moral principles are governed by custom, by habits, by personal character, by maybe society where you live. I've been in the Middle East for 13 years. So if I, of course, very affected by the customs and traditions and what is considered to be moral in the Middle East. And now I have moved to Switzerland and things are slightly different. So some things I do and say, Swiss people go, oh, no, we don't do that here like this. So I have to get reaccustomed. So, for example, I would never invest in, in let's say, although, you know, I, I personally own guns and I, I have nothing against uh, uh, guns. And here in Switzerland, it's, it's legal. But I would not invest in, let's say, uh, a guns manufacturing company in the in, in the US somewhere, because for me, that seems to be creating a lot of moral issues that conflicts with my moral compass. And at the same time, for example, CBD is, is perfectly legal in Switzerland. But if you offer a CBD investment opportunity to a, a person living in the Middle East, you'll probably end up somewhere in jail or investigated for your, for your very unethical and illegal offering opportunity. So ethics is such a personal thing and also cultural thing. For me personally, it's, you know, how do you preserve your capital? How do you preserve uh, what you have and to make sure that nobody comes and takes it away from you? So for me, Bitcoin is a wonderful, wonderful investment opportunity. Very understandable and I think also very personal. Thanks a lot for that. And what are your first associations when thinking about investment ethics in digital assets? Yeah, so there's two things I want to mention here. And some of this really parallels what Irina just mentioned. You know, at Tech 2025, we did a workshop that was actually about 25 Asilomar principles, which are a set of principles that AI ethicists and like experts came around, from around the world to talk about what should the ethics be of AI, right? I know we're talking about AI and this is, this is not a crypto thing, but it was interesting because they came up with these, these principles 
And we did this workshop at Tech 2025. And one of the things that came out of that workshop of people kind of analyzing, you know, what works and what doesn't work about these principles is that everyone came to the same conclusion that anyone could interpret any of those principles just slightly differently and say, well, according to, to my ethics, where I am, this, this is the way I'm interpreting this is ethical, right? Because ethics and, and the law are like two different things and certain things about the law are tr- supposed to try to help prevent unethical things. But we know there's plenty of unethical things that are also legal. So that parallels Irina's point. And the other piece, I think one of the things just that pops into my head when I think about this and crypto is just also we're still dealing with a lot of scams out there. There's a lot of things that I think crypto is solving for in terms of like Arena gave a great example of like people can't just seize your your assets, you know, especially if they themselves are unethical. On the other hand, it's and this is not saying like this this technology is inherently ethical or unethical, but just seeing things like they just had that Squid Game coin where the creators of it like vanished out of thin air and everybody was left like, oh, wait, now this coin is worth like one cent and it was worth like $2,000 yesterday and the website and all the social media was deleted. And it reminds me a lot of what we saw in 2017 with a lot of the ICO scams. And so when I think about investment ethics, I also just think about people being careful to not fall into these scams and doing their due diligence to learn about what's going on. Because again, it's not that the scams are new. It's just that these, these are things where they're not necessarily yet regulated, which you can get a whole debate about who is creating that regulation and should they have the authority to do that. But also seeing like people, people basically getting away with scamming a lot of people like using these, these new tools as well. I think opinions on investment ethics in general, I mean, if we would ask maybe 10 people, we had 20 different uh, opinions on this, although you two are some kind of, of similar, but definitely the, the opinions are quite diverse. In, in any case, we want to try out today a kind of new format in, in our episode and podcast, and then we'll try this out first with Rarina and later on with you. And this will be, in this case for you, Irina, five questions which you please answer with yes and no and only one sentence. So kind of brief answers. So my first question would be, traditional finance versus the crypto market, where do you see more ethical issues? Traditional finance, for sure. That's just, you know, corrupt to the core. And I really, really hope that in my lifetime, we will disrupt it with Bitcoin. Okay, you're a lawyer. So is it ethical for lawyers to accept cryptocurrencies as payment? I don't even I don't even know how to answer that question. It is ethical for lawyers to accept <laughs> payment for sure because we like to eat every now and again and we like to pay our electricity bills and whether you get paid in potatoes or bitcoin this is your personal choice. I mean nothing should stop you as a professional whether you're a lawyer, a plumber, or an accountant or I don't know a farmer nothing should stop you and no law And it is unethical for a government to pass any law that stops you being paid for your goods and services in the means that you want to be paid, whether it's potatoes or Bitcoin. I expected this answer. Okay, third question. Is it ethical if government entities sell confiscated cryptocurrencies to the market, even well, uh, if these governments are critical about them? Uh, 
I am very critical of governments. I, I don't think there are a lot of governments that are ethical right now with all what is going on, especially in the last two years. But let's say we have a good government. Let's say we have a benevolent government. And let's say they confiscated the proceeds of crime. Why not? Whether it's a car or Bitcoin, it, it should be treated exactly the same. It's an asset it's an, uh, and it, they sh- it should be able, they should be able to sell it in the open market. Smart governments probably should keep Bitcoin for, for the treasury or other crypto assets as a treasury or switch it into uh, Bitcoin. I think that would be a, a smart government. Is it ethical to invest in and sell meme coins like Doge and Shiba Inu? To I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, six weeks ago, I, as a joke, as a complete joke, I've put in uh, some money into into a few meme coins as a complete joke. So I don't see any issues with that. What I see issues is with the rug pulls and with investors being tricked into these meme coins by not so good actors. And unfortunately, as Anne said, and I 100% support, we have so many not so good actors in the space and we all as a community must come together to uh, to clean it up okay my last question in this uh, quick rose is it ethical to assign students to find vulnerabilities in life blockchain smart contracts I don't see any issues there. I mean, you're a student, you're getting some sort of benefit, I hope, from from the tasks that are given to you, whether it's payment or whether it's marks. And if it's, you know, everybody, everybody sort of uh, willing party to the transaction, why not? Um, There are and have been a lot of scam projects, of course, as you mentioned already, also Ponzi schemes. Now, as as a lawyer in the industry are you do you often have to do with these projects for example uh, with clients that want to know how they can stay on the safe side while they're doing questionable projects or uh, do you have to do with investors seeking to recover their funds uh, i've been talking to a lot of law firms especially in vienna that tried to recover funds from obvious scams that had crypto on written on the envelope but inside of course it was just a classic ponzi scheme now these things are unfortunately still running rampant uh, rampant what's the experience in this field so considering that I've been in the space for such a long time and I ran a cryptocurrency exchange, so imagine all sorts of shit coins wanted to get listed on the exchange. And not only that, they wanted to engage in pump, uh, pump and dump schemes or as it's called in, in crypto, wash trading or you know market making. I've seen it all and I've seen such bad uh, things and I've seen things that started as good things and turned out as uh, not so good things through various forces, incompetent management or investor pulls the funds at the very last minute. So a lot of like retail investors left in the lurch. So first of all, I do not ever work with people who I know are unethical or scammers or trying to pull a fast one on the investors. I've never worked with clients like this, first of all. I mean, I've been an attorney for almost 20 years now. And believe it or not, my reputation is much more important to me than a tiny little fees I can receive from uh, unethical clients. So we do a very thorough KYC AML check before we onboard a client. We have to do so. That's that's the law we have to comply with. And then, of course, I do my own checks on the client. So that's on the client side. On the uh, investor side, yes, there are a lot of people who get scammed and a lot of people come to me saying, you know, help me recover the funds. And when I look into the case, I mean, it's just a complete dud, right? You sent Bitcoin to some address online 
online and because I mean sometimes it's very very hard to find the chain we do have criminal law capabilities in my firm and the fun thing about Dubai there is a digital assets criminal unit within the Dubai police and the head of the of this unit is somebody I very respect and he has his own team that is investigating all the sort of digital assets crimes and I want to you know give a big shout out to to Tarek and taking this opportunity and to the amazing work he's doing keeping Dubai keeping UAE free from crypto scams free from you know people who are trying to take investors for a ride and they've been quite active and some of the activities you could read in the paper you know there's a a scammer there's a gang of scammers were sent to prison being sent to prison regularly and you can read it in the newspaper so huge shout out to Tarek and the digital assets police unit within the Dubai police they're doing very important work because one of the things that we must always assume is when somebody comes to you with this amazing investment opportunity be very very skeptical and investigate do due diligence and only then uh, invest your hard-earned Bitcoin into that project. Now, of course, that's almost the best case scenario uh, if a country like Dubai has a special digital assets unit within their um, law enforcement. But uh, in other states, that's a very rare sight, I think. Like my experience also in Germany and Austria is that there might be clear rules, but enforcement always comes too late. The institutions that are responsible are understaffed they are completely lacking the capability to even understand what's going on in this crazy new place called the internet and especially then with this crazy magical internet money and on the other hand side we see these regular scam attempts on on youtube i think they're quite famous where you see uh, famous people from crypto space like vitalik running being somewhere on stage or then with elon musk together having a discussion and on the, on the sites you have um, written, if you send one ETH, uh, you get two back within five minutes. If you send two ETH, you get four back and so on and so forth. And these videos often have uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of views. And it seems like these social media platforms are also very ill-equipped to do anything about it. So what could be some approaches to avoid these uh, scams and pump and dump schemes in your point of view now, of course, um, being critical of government regulation, but at the same time, is there any other way of regulating or of getting out of this? Well, I really believe in Darwin's theory, right? So if you, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to say that, but if you're dumb enough to think that you send some person $100 online that you've never met before, and this person sends you $200 back, I'm sorry, you need to learn your lesson. That means the second time you will not do that. Or I hope the second time you will not do that. I mean, like how... How naive do you need to be? Oh, yes, of course, we do have a lot of newbies. We do have a lot of newcomers in the in the industry. And I hope they're taking the time to educate themselves. I hope they're taking the time to understand what is going on, to understand that there's so many obvious scams out there. But if, for example, they do fall for something like this, and hey, don't get me wrong, I fell for a couple of things myself, thinking, okay, that's, uh, you know, something I should put, you know, uh, $100. And it turned out to be a, a very obvious scam but it turned out to be later on but 
that that's how you learn, right? I mean, that's the whole purpose of survival of the, of the of the smartest, right? You need to learn. You learn based on your mistakes, and hopefully, second time you won't do that. But also, so we need to take some personal responsibility for our actions. We cannot outsource the government to regulate us into safety and to regulate us into security and to regulate us into you know the the, the world peace or whatever. The governments have proven over and over again to be completely incompetent to do so. So let's just start there. So that's one. And the second one, yes, there are a lot of social engineering scams out there. For example, my link, my Instagram profile gets uh, spoofed at least four or five times a week. And those scammers um, are pretending to be me and asking people to invest in God knows all sorts of ridiculous opportunities. And they're using my name. And, you know, if you Google my name, things will come up. And Anne gets similar things. And lots of people who are credible names in the industry, uh, it, it, is, it is happening to them on various social media platforms. And unfortunately, those social media platforms are horrendous at addressing that. For example, whenever I report a fake profile that is trying to scam people, it takes them weeks and weeks to remove that. And sometimes they actually respond back to me saying, no, this person is a legitimate person. I was like, yes. So this Arena Heaver that stole this profile of Arena Heaver that stole all of my pictures from my profile is a legitimate person. What the hell are you talking about? So I fight with the social media platforms all the time and, and a lot of people do the same. So I hope that social media platforms smarten up a little bit and try to prevent that. But then again, the regulation is not the answer. The answer is if people didn't fall for these silly things, there would be less of that happening. So the answer is, I, oh, I'm the type of person who takes you know, personal responsibility first, and then you can sort of you know, look outside secondly. Okay, that was that's interesting, Irina. And I see uh, a red thread in all your answers. And I think your opinion towards what governments can do and what they what they shouldn't do. In any case, governments somehow jump on the ESG train, like so environmental, social, good governments, compliant. That's a big topic for at least for Western uh, governments. And and I would like to address this question to you. And it's it's also a little bit like the roast I've done with Irina a couple of minutes ago. So kind of brief answers, maybe not one sentence, uh, but definitely not too long. On the three ESG dimensions, so environmental aspects of cryptocurrencies, social impact of cryptocurrencies, and good governance and transparencies. Let's go one by one. And I'll give you around 30 seconds or so for an answer, or we can even make it a kind of, of courtroom setting where you have like a, a couple of seconds uh, for a passionate plea in our courtroom here for uh, cryptocurrencies in terms of environmental aspects. We all know, obviously, uh, mining consumes a lot of energy. What's your view on this and how would you defend crypto in this regards? Yes. So I will say, yes, crypto and blockchain are not good for the environment, even when you think of the things you can offset it with. The other side of the coin I have, though, is how good for the environment is all the manufacturing that goes on because of the amount of consumerism in America? Like, how are we justifying like the amount of servers it takes for all these other internet companies to run? It's not as much, but we're not saying we need to stop with all these other technologies in order to save the planet. You know, I know we're starting to do more electric vehicles, but what happens when those batteries die that they don't just disintegrate, right? Something has to happen. And 
I, I don't see this in terms of like, okay, there's more of an environmental in- impact than some other technologies, but unless we as a society decide, yeah, we're going to get rid of all these other things. Um, we're going to start judging saying like, yes, we need to figure out which are the, the most ethical of our technologies and just focus on that and everything else we have to cut. And we as a society are just not going to use those technologies anymore. I don't really see why cryptocurrency needs to go, but we're going to decide other technologies that are also destroying the planet. Um, like they get to stay. It doesn't make any more sense to me than others. That's my environmental take. Okay, a side question. Uh, I break my own rules here. Do you think proof of stake is a solution? Because proof of work obviously is more energy intensive. You could do that to conserve it. It wouldn't completely offset things here. I think there's a number of things because some of this is also things we can do to, we could move towards proof of stake. There's things that we could do in terms more of the hardware, making it so that it takes less energy. But I do think ultimately... Like what we've seen with other technologies, with like the automobile, with computers, computers used to take up an entire room. Over time, that has evolved, both because the first version of those technologies that came out were not the best. And then you could argue that here and there, and I know Irene is not a fan of governments, here and there, like certain government regulations in specific countries have led to kind of pushing certain things to become more efficient over time. So I think there's a lot of different ways we could push for that. Okay, let's move to social impact. And if we look at it very, uh, from a very narrow perspective, I don't think that it's not necessarily mine or Simon's perspective, but looking at it as a narrow perspective says, okay, because of this anonymous transactions, crypto allow or even promote criminal activities. What's your call on this? So first I'm going to say a lot of, 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 of these cryptocurrencies are not quite as anonymous as people might assume because people have been tracked down for certain activities. So there's that. And yes, there are coins that, you know, claim to keep you completely anonymous, but people who are going to do crime are going to do crime. It's just really like, how hard is it like to do crime? Like, what is the price of doing that crime? You're not just going to say, yeah, I'm going to start drug dealing today because now I can do financial transactions anonymously. That's not going to be the driver. I think there's also the positive social impacts, you know, in giving more people control over their money. But I really think that we are at risk of not realizing that if all the systems we build around DeFi work and function exactly the way they work and function in traditional finance. Okay, the last point, a little bit, I think, intertwined with uh, the one, the social impact one, is good governance or transparency. Do you think cryptocurrency as an ecosystem, not an individual blockchain or technology, lacks good governance? I mean, I would say, I would, I would argue yes, because especially a lot of this is based in the idea that you're building a community and you're build, or even if you're not building a community, you're trying to get people to all believe that this thing has value. And if you don't kind of establish governance around it, especially as we're seeing more, more DAOs pop up and that kind of thing, it's going to be kind of hard to get people together around, around one thing. Like, you know, if people say trying to get a bunch of humans to agree together on something or do something together is kind of like hurting cats. I would argue that hurting cats might sometimes be easier. And so I would say good governance is something that, and even if it's not, we're not talking about governance from the government, like 
even if it's like within the within the the blockchain and crypto community, having governance and figuring out like how do we how do we want to go about this? I think that is critical. On the last point, I would like to ask Irina as well. What's your view on good governance and transparency in the blockchain space as an ecosystem? That's a very good question. And, I'm, and I'll repeat again, I'm a big advocate for taking the responsibility first. And each project, each person, each community, each DAO needs to put good governance principles and good governance policies in place uh, first, right? And enforce that and, you know, be the good guy to try to do the right thing. And if so many will put that in the cornerstone of their operations, then the others will have to sort of like fall in line and just say, okay, this is a good example how to do things properly. Let us try to do something similar. So I am not a fan of some other third party prescribing, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this. I'm a big fan of taking the responsibility and having market forces to navigate that or to sort of to put pressures for good governance internally because also internally we as an industry can out the bad players and we can do it much more and much better than than let's say some regulator who hasn't understood what bitcoin is coming and trying to impose that from the outside but you know i'm a bit of an idealist here I don't know. Okay, I see you're from the Davian front and still remained there. And you mentioned in the beginning uh, that you were also involved in a, in a project on AI and AI ethics. And, and what I understood from this is that you were in this project investigating whether AI needs specific investment or application or whatever ethics. Do you think the same holds true for blockchain? Yeah, so earlier I was talking about an event where we were discussing you know, the need for AI ethics and the, also the problems uh, with trying to create AI ethics, not saying we shouldn't, but inherently it's challenging to say, well, here are ethical principles. I do think blockchain should try to have ethical principles. And I mean, I think that should be more of as a, a blockchain crypto community and not necessarily something that is like decided by necessarily a government. But I think, again, the challenge with that is, Coming up with ethical principles doesn't mean everyone's going to agree or inter even interpret the ones that they think they agree on is that going to interpret them in the same way. But in the process of trying to create them, we better understand what we agree with, what we disagree with, what other where other people stand and are able to kind of come closer to something a little more ethical, you know, and making sure that we are trying to adhere to ethics. Because I think you it's hard to... I think, refine and improve on that if you're not having those conversations at all. I think that sums it up very nicely. You need to first think something through, even if you don't figure out the full solution at the end, at least you realize what the issues really are. At the very end of our podcast, we often like to ask our guests the so-called golden question. It's a question that's a bit more far out there and hopefully also gives us some good ground for discussion to round out the podcast. And this time, our golden question is, of course, going to the both of you and hopefully um, leads to some fruitful discussion um, about a topic that has been alluded to earlier a little bit already. Now, we have from mainstream media, of course, lots of news coming in about this blockchain thing might be very inherently unethical because some things are pseudonymous. Um, 
it's not like the things that we already know in finance. But now, of course, the question is, do we even want what we have in finance? What has been built over hundreds of years? Is that still not only adequate for our time, but is that even ethical what we are doing there? We've got, of course, rampant money laundering issues. We've got corruption on a large scale. We've got huge externalized costs that is largely financed um, through these financial system and there's little oversight really from a democratic point of view just think about big oil in nigeria the entire niger delta being completely flooded in oil hundreds of thousands of farmers being displaced we've got mafia controlled healthcare institutions within europe and of course greenwashing of large multinationals and etfs in order to keep um, investors money and on the other hand we've seen especially this year and the last year the power of retail investors really um, kind of not ganging up, but in a most positive way, gathering their forces in order to save companies out of sympathy because they want them to stick around. If you think about the 11 million Wall Street bets, Reddit people that bought really far out of the money, short time course uh, on AMC, GameStop, and just saying, we like the stock and keeping them out of bankruptcy. Now, this could be a system for people to decide which companies should be sticking around. And of course, if we're talking about ethics being a, let's say, yeah, a, ethics being a amalgamation of moral codes within a certain group or society, then nothing better than ethics that is fully based on democratic will and purpose. Now, could crypto through its inherent transparency and the democratization of finance be the very cure to these ESG issues and in itself already be the fundamental infrastructure for a sustainable financial system. Now, what would have to happen on a societal point of uh, side, on the legal side of things? So um, I'm a big, big fan what happened with GameStop. I, for me, that was just, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And I was rooting for them with every fiber of my soul. And of course, what happened, the company came in, Robinhood came in, and tried to, was it Robin Hood, yeah? Uh, and tried to uh, stop them. And, and I mean, that's, that, that was just ridiculous. Whereas at the same time, the US uh, speaker, Nancy Pelosi, who is trading on insider information, and if you invested $1,000 with her back when she started her insider trading, you would have something like $26 million or something. There's a really awesome Twitter account that I follow that sort of analyzes uh, Nancy Pelosi's uh, trading uh, activity. So, um, and, and if you're an average guy, you know, guy off the street, you're absolutely precluded from making very legitimate trades. So this is the unfortunate situation where we have, where there is this 1%, the elite of the world, they do whatever they want, they run this world, whether, whether it's the financial world or even the freedom of movement, because, you know, nothing that has stopped them from traveling uh, while the rest of the world would just shut down at home. And if we look, we look at the ECG and the summit, which is happening in Scotland. So all these big, Wigs that are running the governments and the countries has, have flew in using their own private jets to sit and talk about the climate change. If you see the sort of uh, the opulence that they are arriving in, I think the US president was driving with a motorcade of something 90 cars around the city. I mean, is this the message you want to make when you're talking about the climate change? 
they're just so out of touch with reality. They don't even understand what is it that they're doing wrong. Because, you know what? Because they don't care. Because there's rules are for, for rules are for the 99%, not for the 1%. So I think we live in this reality where all these horrible things that you've mentioned, you know, the money laundering by the banks, they are the biggest money launderers out there. The, the billions and billions of fines uh, imposed on banks are for money laundering. So do I think Bitcoin is the answer? Do I think Bitcoin is the red pill you take to opt out from this very unjust situation that we're in? I hope so. We're very early, less than 3% of the world holds any digital assets, crypto assets. So I really, really hope that more people will wake up to these injustices that are being perpetrated against them and try to opt out of the, of the traditional world. And maybe, Anne, what do you think would have to happen to get to a more transparent and democratic form of sustainable finance? I'm going to say I don't exactly have the answer, but I know the current system is is not as the same system that allowed for, for like basically Haiti to pay reparations to France for like kicking the French out of out of Haiti. And, you know, if, for those of you who may not know, like, you know, Haiti was a French colony. They were using slaves from Africa, like for on plantations. And Haiti was like, they basically did a slave revolt. They kicked out all of the French. It was a very bloody um, revolt. But then France basically said, you have to pay us because we lost all this labor. We lost all the plantations. The US basically said, well, Haiti, you have to pay them. Otherwise, we're not going to play nice. And if you know anything about global finance, kind of like the US dominates a lot of what the Caribbean does and does not get to do. And I think a lot about, you know, how a lot of our system, especially here in the Americas, is really built upon that legacy of slavery, but also just saying like we can use crypto is not necessarily like this is how we would avoid that kind of thing in the future. Like there's still like several African colonies that are still paying France every single year, which, you know, we, not something that is talked about a lot. And it's like, how do we have a system where we are empowering some of these states that are these nation states that are basically having to pay taxes into their former colonizers, you know, like that's something where there's still lots of other things where even with crypto, you could find a way to still maintain that power dynamic. We need to start thinking a lot more about how do we have it so it's not just like individuals, but also countries that have been kind of in headlock with people who came in and took over and left, but said like, yeah, but if you don't keep paying us, then we're going to do X, Y, Z, and it's going to be even worse for, for you or the people who are, are there. Not saying everybody who leads those countries is necessarily looking out for the best interests of their people, but it definitely creates a power structure in which it incentivizes the leadership there to think of their best self-interests. I have a second golden question, which I asked you to answer very, very briefly in only one sentence. And I start with Irina. How can we get more competent women like you in the blockchain and crypto space? Well, thank you for calling me competent. So I, there are a lot of competent women in various industries and there's lots of really amazing women doing really cool work. How do we get more women into 
into crypto space that's that's your basically you know 66 million dollar question right no (laughs) industry no yeah no industry can stand on their own two feet if if it's not equally represented by you know 50 percent of the population we need more women we need more people from diverse backgrounds we need more people of from various parts of the world so it cannot be white middle-aged 50-year-old Anglo-Saxon males that are, that are, that are currently running now our financial world, that we cannot have that homogeneous crowd running the crypto space. Absolutely not. So absolutely. Like, for example, what Anne has just mentioned about the reparations that are being paid. I mean, there's just, how disgusting is this? We all agree in nowadays that, you know, slavery was, although it was legal, but it was totally immoral and totally wrong and just on every, every level. And now in 2021, there are countries that are paying reparations because because they refuse to be slaves. I mean, how can, how is this ethical, moral? And of course, I would not know that if Anne didn't share this story with me. Like, I, I had no idea, right? And this is why diverse backgrounds and diverse knowledge and diverse genders and diverse ethnical backgrounds are so important because, I mean, the, because that just brings all this sort of perspectives. But how do we do that? That I do not know. So that I don't have an answer uh, completely. So oh, okay. sorry. Then I, then I pass on the question directly to end the 66 dollar question million dollar question yeah. i mean i think a really good step is the people who are in the space making room for i'll say i know a lot of women in crypto and blockchain do mm. all of those people feel welcome at the events that are put on do they always feel welcome in you know some of the larger communities and unfortunately the answer is No. And people might argue, well, we're not doing anything intentionally to actively make people not feel included. But also when you think about the power dynamics of whether it's like just we look at the space and just the reality is like there's a lot of like Eurocentric white cis hetero men. And I say also Eurocentric because I also mean, mean throughout the world who have European heritage. And it's that's honestly where the power dynamic of our world lies. And I think the reality is, is like, if no, if that group of people, because they're not, they're actually not the majority of the population of the world, but they are the people who have the power. If they don't want to do things to even make it so that people showing up to a meetup feel welcome or think about like, how would somebody who is not in this, this place position of power, either economically or socially or other things like, how would I make sure that they can be included and feeling, you know, then why would those people want to necessarily be there? Because there's, I think this problem that there's this sense that they're not there or they're invisible and they exist, but they may not always show up to the things that you might expect everyone to show up to. And it's partly because sometimes they're just not invited and sometimes they, they don't want to go or be around certain, not saying like that whole group, but certain people even within that group and no one holds those people accountable. Yeah, okay. But I also, but I also dare anyone to not invite Anne or myself to any of the event, and uh, we we show up with our own chairs, right? Because also personal responsibility is very important. Yes, there's a lot of events that, for example, I as a woman don't want to go, but if I think I need to be there, I'll bring my own chair, even yeah. if I'm not invi- invited. So, and and but also, but also making sure that people 
can come with their own chair is also important, right? Absolutely. And I mean, I will show up with my own like couch if I have to. But when you look at even just investing, right? We're It's 2021 and we're still seeing data that shows that there are women where they don't feel comfortable investing. And yes, people should take control, but this these are the numbers. And we look at what those people are saying about why they don't even want to invest. Not even like why they don't want to show up to like crypto blockchain events. It's like why they are scared to even invest in traditional finance. And a lot of it comes down to the way they are made to feel when they enter those spaces, the way that they are spoken to, you know, even just walking into like an investment company office. And there is some layer of, yes, take personal responsibility. But if we know there is something that is honestly doesn't seem that hard to kind of overcome. And then as a society, we don't want to address it. Then why, why do we keep talking about it? It kind of sounds like we don't necessarily want to, and not saying you don't want to fix it, but as a society, we don't want to fix it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Again, it comes to this 1%, right? They're running the world or let's say, you know, this uh, European centric white middle aged man, they run the world. So why would they want to, but, you know, think about it, uh, you know, they don't even see that as a problem. And unfortunately, that's the situation. I always say some of them have daughters, and I hope with this podcast we provided at least the two of you a comfortable share. Anna and Irina, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it was great and was a very insightful talk about, I think, a challenging topic. And I would say opinions on crypto investment ethics are as diverse as uh, opinions on the future profitability of such investments. A big thank you also to Simon for co-hosting this episode. And dear listeners, we hope you like this talk with our guests. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay tuned, stay loyal, and follow the Untitled Investment Talk on social media, the podcast about all things digital assets. No noise, all signal. Mm-hmm.